Well, this morning is an opportunity we have to, as a church, think through one aspect of our church vision statement. And you can find the church vision statement on our website under the heading, The Church We Want To Be. And this is the vision statement we looked at as a church on our day away back in September. And this morning, we just every term we want to look at one aspect of that vision statement. And this morning we come to the third part of the church we want to be. And it's on the screen now, I'll just read it out for us. It says, By grace through faith, we are prayerfully committed to becoming a community of people who care for and disciple people of all backgrounds through Christ-like relationships. And beneath that statement in the website is an explanation of what we think that means as a church. It says, we believe that the Christian life was meant to be lived in community. As the body of Christ, we believe that God has called us to live together in truth and love, so that in all things we will grow up into maturity in Christ. In our life together, we aim to imitate Christ in speech, love and service, so we may nurture one another towards Christian maturity. Again, that is part of the church we want to be. And we're going to think about that for the next few minutes using this passage from 1 Thessalonians. And perhaps you've been coming to Modern Road for a long time now, and yet you don't feel that familiar with the church vision statement yet. The four aspects of the church we want to be, we only really brought those to the church back in September. We explored them on the day away, we explored them in home groups at that point, but you maybe feel you don't quite know these statements yet. If that's the case, then this Sunday is for you. It's a chance for you to look at these aspects of the church vision statement and to think through where you might fit in to that. Or you may be very new to Malden Road and you're not aware that we even had a vision statement. Well, please do stick around and explore it with us this morning. The same goes if you're visiting today. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone who would say you believe in Jesus or follow Jesus yet, it's still really helpful for you to look at what it means something of what it means to be a Christian community that cares for one another and disciples one another. So again, please, just explore this with us and see what you make of the Bible's teaching on Christian community. And as any member of Modern Road could tell you, we've not mastered this yet. It's an area of our life together as a church community where we frequently fail one another, where we frequently let one another down. But it is the conviction of the elders that to care for and disciple one another is a key teaching in the New Testament. It's a teaching we need to take seriously as a church, to listen to it and to wrestle with it. So do we care for one another? Do we disciple one another at Malden Road? Are our relationships truly Christ-like? And again, your immediate response to that could be, well, no. You may be someone deeply aware of the failures and shortcomings of our life together. We are not a perfect church. Far from it. And even this morning, the Lord may be calling some of us to repent of ways in which we've let other people down. In ways we fail to care for one another, to disciple one another. And you may feel doubtful this morning we could ever overcome those shortcomings. But I want us to see from 1 Thessalonians 5 that the only hope we or any other community of Christians have of truly caring for one another and discipling one another is if God is at work in us and if we are asking God to change us and use us to care for and love the people he brings us into contact with. 
See, we don't have to despair of ever living up to this statement. And we shouldn't be cynical about even trying because of past failures. See, this passage is deeply practical. It shows us ways in which we can care for and help one another become more like Jesus. And above all, it's a passage that points us to the key to that. See, it's not all about us redoubling our efforts, us making bold promises again to change and to be more caring, to be more loving. See, Paul is clear in verses 23 and 24 here. It is not ultimately about us working harder. See, for us to grow nearer to the church we want to be, we will need God's grace, we will need to trust in Christ for the mistakes we're going to make, and we need to pray that God will so work among us that we will grow in love and care for one another. See, Paul's not calling us to work ourselves into the grind here. What he is doing is he's calling us to know our God and to allow him to work through us and to use us to love one another. And before we turn to this passage, I thought it might be helpful for me to share something of my first experiences of Modern Road when I came here. See, I arrived here as an engaged man back in 2003. Lily, my wife, didn't arrive until the December when we were married. So I came to Oxford to work as this church's youth worker after spending four years up in the northeast of England, in Durham. And to be honest, when I arrived in Oxford, I was terrified. See, Oxford was a big place to me. I know people from London and other cities would laugh at that, but for me, Oxford was huge. And I didn't know what to expect from my work with teenagers, and I was miles apart from the woman I loved. Oh, isn't that nice? So I, I felt lonely when I came here. I felt unsure about my future. And I sometimes doubted if I'd made the right decision to move to Oxford at all. But very quickly in those first few weeks, the church demonstrated real love and care for me. People would come up to me and assure me they were praying for me. Various church members came up to talk to me and make me feel really welcome here. I was invited around for dinner, which was always a bonus. See, my first impressions of Malden Road was of a welcoming, loving and caring community of people. And I'll admit that some of that came from being a church worker. I was kind of hard to ignore or miss at the front. But I've always felt the way I was welcomed by the church back in 2003 spoke volumes about the church as a whole. We were a church where literally you knew everyone by name. And there was a wonderful richness to that. But here we are five years later, in 2008, and God has blessed this church with considerable growth in numbers. There are far more of us gathered together on a Sunday morning than there were when I arrived. And that growth is both a sign of God's blessings on us, but it's also a challenge to us. Growth has brought with it a real challenge. There are now more people here on a Sunday morning than anyone could realistically know or have an authentic relationship with. So the question before us is, well, how do we still love one another and care for one another and disciple one another as a larger church? And at least part of the answer to that, I feel, can be found in 1 Thessalonians 5. So you're going to turn to that with me again. See, at the end of this letter to the Christians in Thessalonica, Paul gives us something of a four-step plan towards a healthy church, towards a church that cares for and disciples people, 
basically towards the church we want to be at Morgan Road. And firstly, Paul tells us that a healthy church is a church that will love their leaders. Verses 12 to 13. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. See, we don't know why Paul felt it necessary to write that to the Thessalonians. Perhaps there were people in the church who didn't respect their leaders, who were criticising them, had very little faith in them. Perhaps Paul knew that some of the leaders of that church had been foolish or overbearing in the past. So it was a struggle for many in the church to respect them because of their track record. We just don't know the reasons for this. But what we do know is that for Paul, a healthy church is a church that loves its leaders. Where the church members hold their leaders in the highest regard in love because of their work. Verse 13. Now as one of the church leaders here, um, I need to be careful not to abuse Paul's words here. See, Paul assumes that the church leaders are working hard for the church. Do you see that? That they are taking seriously the fact that God has placed them over the church to teach and correct God's people. And if you're a church member here today, I'd encourage you to hold myself and the other staff and elders to account on the basis of verse 12. If you feel we are failing in our God-given role, then please tell us. But as a leader, I also want to urge you this morning, pray for your leaders. Respect your leaders and love your leaders if you call this church your church. See, why should you pray for the leadership team at Malden Road? Well, because Paul is right here. Serving a local church is hard work. It can be very demanding. And I'm confident I speak for all the staff and the elders when I say, we need your prayers. We need the prayers of God's people. We cannot do what we feel God is calling us to do here without the help of God. And to get that help, we need the prayers of his people. So as we seek to lead the church at Modern Road, please pray for us. And why does Paul urge the Thessalonians to respect their leaders, to hold them in the highest regard? We might expect him to justify that claim. You might expect him to list off their leadership credentials or their really useful track record as leaders or their theological understanding as leaders, as reasons for people to respect them. But you'll notice that Paul doesn't do that. What he does do is he tells the Thessalonians that the leaders they have over them are over them in the Lord, verse 12. The Lord Jesus has appointed these men as your leaders, Paul says, so respect them as such. You might not have chosen them, but Jesus did, so you need to hold them in the highest regard. And that is a challenge for all of us. As I said earlier, Malden Road is a far from perfect church, and the leadership team here is also far from perfect. We have made mistakes in the past, both in personal dealings with individuals and even in bigger decisions that affect the life of the church. And during my time here, Malden Road has always had a relatively young leadership team, and that can cause problems, that can cause difficulties for people to respect leaders who often are younger than they are. This is a challenge 
Paul's words here. But will we listen to Paul's words here? See, we don't respect our leaders because we would have chosen them ourselves. We're called to respect them because the Lord has placed them over the church. And that isn't a blank check for incompetence or tyranny on the part of church leaders. I hope we've already seen that. But it is a challenge to all of us. Do we respect our leaders and will we love them? We're thinking as a church about how we care for and love one another. And one another includes our leaders. So do we see that as part of our calling? To pray for our leaders, to encourage them, to talk to them. See, for Paul here, a healthy church is a church that loves its leaders. But after talking about the love and respect Christians are to have for their leaders, Paul quickly turns in verse 14 to the love God's people are to have for one another. See, from verses 12 to 13, your immediate reaction might be that, Paul, you've just got too high a view of the role of Christian leaders. You're you're just taking that too far. But when we come to verses 14 and 15, we see that actually Paul has an equally or even more high view, or higher even, view of the role of church members in a church. See, in no sense are so-called ordinary church members ordinary. In no sense are they called to be passively submissive to the church leadership. No, for Paul, and throughout the New Testament, every single believer is called by God to care for and disciple the people God brings into their lives. That's verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. See, Paul's addressing the whole church here, not just the leadership. And we need to take Paul's emphasis seriously as we think through how we as a church can care for one another. Because again, Maldon Road at the minute actually has quite a large staff team for such a relatively small church. We have three full-time church workers plus two church trainees. And that is a generous provision for a church this size. We need to be thankful to God for that. But as a result, perhaps we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, well, if we've got such a big leadership team, then they're the ones who are meant to care for people. They're the ones who should be doing the discipling. Maybe even you can sit and think, I really wish the church workers would listen to Paul here. I know for a fact there are people who need to be encouraged or warned. So why don't the church workers get alongside them and talk to them? Well, the answer this passage gives us is that perhaps God is not calling one of the church workers to step in and encourage that person or warn that person. See, perhaps God is calling you to encourage or warn that person. You see, it is frankly impossible for any church to care for the people who belong to its community by relying solely on the leadership to do the caring. The New Testament calls on all believers to serve one another and care for one another. As Paul puts it here, that encompasses a huge range of things. It encompasses warning one another, encouraging one another, helping one another, being patient with one another, and forgiving one another. So we all need to listen to Paul's words here. They're addressed 
to brothers and sisters, to ordinary men and women like us. God is inviting all of us to be used by him to build up and care for his people. And let's not be any doubt about that. That is a high calling. Paul said it is down to ordinary believers like you to warn the idle, to tell a fellow believer a difficult truth if they need to hear it. Paul says it's down to you to encourage the timid, to get a timid person to lift their eyes to their great God and trust in him instead of just be terrified about their future. It is down to you to help the weak. It is down to you to be patient with everyone. See, Paul expects a lot from believers here. See, in short, he expects us to become more Christ-like. And when we think about loving one another and caring for one another, all too often we become sentimental. We end up idealising the church and one another. We believe that loving one another will always result in just a warm, fuzzy feeling when we're with each other. A great, just warm, gooey feeling of love. But look at Paul's description of the sort of people we should expect to see in the church around us. Look at Paul's description of the sort of people we ourselves will be from time to time. The idle, the weak, the timid, people who will require patience. See, Paul is under no illusions about Christians. He doesn't claim that we should love one another because we are so lovely. Quite the opposite a lot of the time. What Paul does do is call on us to treat one another as Christ has treated us. That's what we mean in the division statement when we talk about Christ-like relationships. Because when you read over the Gospels, you're left in no doubt that Jesus Christ is the most loving man who has ever lived. You can be in no doubt of that when you read the accounts of his life. But his love is not sentimental. It is a love that challenges people, that rebukes people, that warns people as well as a love that strengthens and encourages and comforts. And in a similar way, Christ-like relationships among us may sometimes involve us needing to challenge one another, to rebuke one another if we're making mistakes. The example Paul gives is the warning an idle person requires. See, to rebuke a fellow believer is not a denial of love. Instead, when it is done in a God-honouring way, it is an expression of Christ-like love that aims to help that other person. Of course, we need to be cautious in rebuking and warning one another. And I think it may well be significant that in this list Paul draws up, he only mentions one example of warning a fellow believer and five examples of building one another up and forgiving one another. You see, Christ-like relationships will always aim to give courage to the timid as we show one another the God we trust. They always aim to bear with one another and to be patient with one another. Christ-like relationships will forgive past hurts and seek to be kind to one another. But warning is involved. Rebuking may be involved. Paul is calling the Thessalonians here to Christ-like relationships. And he's calling us to Christ-like relationships 
as we seek to care for and disciple one another. So at Maldonado, where are the places where we as church members can begin to apply Paul's teaching here? How can the average church member at Maldonado live up to the call of this passage and warn and encourage and help one another? Well, the simple answer is by putting ourselves in the way of other people, by living alongside one another and by sharing our lives with one another. And there are at least three areas I can think of in the life of Modern Road where we can be used by God to care for people in the church. First one's really simple. Through friendships. A very obvious one. But we can befriend one another. It can also be a challenge sometimes. Would we look around this room and say there are friends of ours here, people we know well, people we have shared life experiences with. You see, friendship, it might seem ordinary and unspectacular, even unspiritual, but God's word is clear that we can worship God and care for one another through our friendships. See, the challenge is, do we allow our friendships just to be about affirming one another, just to be sort of slapping each other in the back going, you're great, no, you're great. Is that friendship? Or will we see our friendships as each one of them a unique relationship given to us by our sovereign God through which Jesus can transform us and use us to transform the other person. So you think back for a minute to those instances we talked about where we need to challenge others in the church. Perhaps someone we know is involved in an inappropriate relationship that is just going to damage them and damage the other people involved. Perhaps we know someone who is just gradually growing bitter towards God and they need to repent of that. They need to see that in their lives. Perhaps someone's priorities have very little to do with God's kingdom and very much to do with their own self-worth, their own sense of achievement. See, in each of those instances, Christ-like love dictates that we challenge the believer involved. But who is best placed to challenge them? Is it one of the pastors or an elder? Is it a home group leader? Well, sometimes yes. But I want to suggest to you that it would be best for the challenge to come from a close friend. A friend who knows the person who's struggling. A friend who's shared life experiences with that person. A friend who's committed to that person. And who knows that if the roles are reversed, that other person will be challenging them. See, the book of Proverbs says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. See, friendships are vital to our care for one another. And another area in our church's life where we can grow in this area is through our home groups. And it's been really exciting in recent years for me to see the number of home groups the church really grow. To the point where now we have ten groups regularly meeting up to read the Bible, to pray for one another and to share life together. And you see, home groups are places where we can be honest with one another about all the things that Paul talks about here. About idleness, about timidity, about weakness. See, home groups are places where we can pray for one another and where we can in turn be prayed for. 
And there are places where we can begin to apply God's word in a more immediate and personal way than we ever could in a sermon. And there are places where we can share both the high points and the low points of our lives. Home groups should be places where we can laugh together, but where also we can cry together. Whereas that passage in Romans 12 that Peter read to us earlier says, we can rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I hope we can see that all of that takes time and a genuine commitment to the group of people you're meeting with. The sort of open relationships home groups seek to develop can't be manufactured or rushed into. But the rewards are enormous. And I'd encourage everyone here who isn't already part of a home group to consider seriously joining one. And all of our home groups at the minute are pretty much a capacity as well. Just a few spaces there. So again, if you feel that is an area where God is calling you to serve, to maybe lead a home group and enable it to meet, again, please pray about that. Talk to me about that. Home groups are a vital part of us, caring for one another and loving one another. Part of our authentic relationships, Christ-like relationships together. And another area we can develop those relationships, as been mentioned by Peter as well, in prayer partnerships and triplets. Again, some people in the church are in these, some aren't. You see, for some people they develop out of home groups, for other people they take the place of home groups. I know of people in the church who meet to pray about once a week. Some of them do just that. They talk and pray together. Others will look at a bit of the Bible together. And as an eldership, we would love to see more and more prayer partners and triplets springing up across the church. And in particular, we've been discussing recently, it would be great to see older Christians and younger Christians meeting together and being mentored one for another. So we don't have a formal network for that. But again, I'd encourage you, if you're an older Christian, and at more than note, that's a pretty relative term. If you're an older Christian, consider, do I have the time to spend with maybe one younger Christian regularly to pray with them, to seek to develop them in their love for Jesus? And if you're a relatively young Christian, well, again, don't be shy. Try and get to know some of the older Christians here and see if they'd be able to pray for you and pray with you on a regular basis. Again, generally it's my experience, women are better at initiating these relationships than men. But, but men don't need to be shy because that is an opportunity to be prayed for and to share life together that we shouldn't pass up. So you see, there are many ways that we can care for and disciple one another at Malden Road. And it's a calling that Paul makes on all of us. But just in case we begin to view care and discipleship as purely human activities, things that just happen on a, on a horizontal level, Paul moves on in verse 16 to demonstrate the vertical aspects of Christian care and discipleship. The effect Christian care and discipleship has on our relationship with God. You see, the relationships we're talking about here, they will only have eternal value if they lead us to love Jesus more and to deepen our relationship with him. And that's verses 16 to 22. I'll just read those for us. Verse 16. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see, these are precious verses for us to remember as a church. So often, 
particularly younger Christians, can really find themselves longing to know just what God's will is for their lives. Where should I end up? What job should I do? Should I get married? If so, to whom? I just want to know God's will for my life. Well, the answer is perhaps surprising. Because Paul tells us what God's will is for our lives. That God isn't actually that concerned with the physical details of where we might end up or who we might be married to. More than that, he's concerned about the quality of our relationship with him. That we are joyful people. That we pray. That we give thanks to him. See, being joyful is hard. But we need to recognise that our God is the only true and eternal source of joy in our lives. When everything else around us may fail us, God does not fail us. And his purposes for us are good, a joyful inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. See, we need to learn what it is to trust in God at every turn of our lives, to pray continually, prayers confessing our sin, prayers crying for help, prayers thanking God or asking big questions of God. When we look at these verses, perhaps we think, well, they just preach an impossibly high ideal. See, we're all forgetful people. Thankfulness does not come easily to us. We see this is an area where meeting together as a church family in small groups, in twos and threes, becomes invaluable for us. See, why should I be joyful? Why should I pray? Why should I give thanks in all circumstances? See, we need to lift one another's eyes to the Lord to see why. We need to help one another and be helped by one another to see what God has done for us in sending his Son into the world and what God is doing among us even here and now. See, I praise God there is evidence all around us at Malden Road that God is working among his people, that God is changing people here, showing them more his love, showing them more about his grace, demonstrating his utter faithfulness to them. But there will be times in our lives when we as individuals just cannot see it. When we as individuals cannot see beyond the difficulties and trials in our own lives. When we begin to doubt, is God really working today? Well, it's at times like that that we need to help one another to see God and to see why he is working and why he is worthy of our thanks. We need to lift one another's eyes to the Lord. And again, it's a beautiful thing that in my experience, when I find myself pointing a friend to Jesus, when they cannot see him at that point, when their struggles are too much, then that friend in turn will help point me to the Lord at a time when I cannot see why I should give thanks, when I cannot see his goodness in my life. See, lifting one another's eyes to the Lord, that is a mutual necessity for us. And then verses 19 to 22 just expand this call to love and listen to the Lord in our life together. And at first glance, these verses may be looked a bit odd to some of us. Maybe if we're not used to talking in Paul's terms about the Holy Spirit and about prophecy. Just read them for us here. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. 
avoid every kind of evil. Now, I don't know, it depends on your church background, but some of that might all sound a bit Pentecostal for some people here this morning. But at bottom, there are rich insights here for all of us. See, for Paul, and for the rest of the New Testament writers, the supreme method of listening to the Lord was listening to his word, both in the Old Testament and in the rapidly increasing New Testament to which this letter belongs. God's word was final and authoritative on who God is and how we should live in response to him. And it's the same for Christians today. That is why the Bible is so precious to us. But Paul also recognised that the Lord can speak to us through his people. And that's what he means here by prophecy. In the Old Testament, prophecy was applying the eternal word of God to the changing people of God. And see, it's got a similar meaning in the New Testament and for us today. Prophecy is an insight from God given to a believer for another believer or believers to hear. It's not necessarily to do with the future. Instead, it's usually an insight that is not explicitly given in Scripture, but that's in keeping with the character of God that's revealed in Scripture. See, that's what prophecy is, and that's what prophecy Paul is recommending to these Thessalonians. That is why Paul tells them to test everything and to hold on to the good. See, the Bible is our final authority in everything. And if a prophecy goes against the Bible, or God as he's revealed in Scripture, then we can reject it. But when a fellow believer feels they have an insight or wisdom from God to share with you, you shouldn't treat them or their message with contempt, Paul tells us. Test it. Don't just accept it from God, but don't reject it out of hand either. And my feeling is that when believers live in close relationship with one another and seek to share their lives together, then the sort of prophecy that Paul is speaking of here will occur more regularly. See, if we're truly caring for one another and listening to one another, then God will give many of us insights into how we can better love, trust and obey him in our lives. Again, we should test those insights. They're not on the same level as listening to the Bible, but sometimes the Lord may have things to say to us through one another, things that we need to listen to. So listen to the Lord as he speaks through his people. So we've seen in this passage that a healthy church is a church that is committed to caring for one another and discipling one another. A church that loves its leaders, that loves one another and that loves and listens to the Lord. But there's one final thing this passage teaches us that is vitally important for us to understand if we are to be the church we want to be. And it comes in verses 23 to 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So if we respond to the challenge of caring for God's people simply by redoubling our own efforts, then we'll have missed the point here. If we make a bold promise to God this morning that, God, I am never going to let another believer die at Malden Road Church, then we will have missed the point 
Paul is making here. Redoubling our efforts, making big promises to God, both presume that everything depends on us. But see what Paul is saying in verses 23 to 24. God is the one who ultimately will care for his people. God is the one who will change us and transform us and sanctify us. See, God will care for his people. He graciously does that through his people, but his people need to recognize that ultimately it's God and not us who does the work. And that is why Paul ends this section in prayer. That's why he ends this section by lifting our eyes to the God who is faithful and who will do all that he has promised for his people. The God who will keep us. The God who will care for us. The God who will bring us into the new creation to be with him forever. See, God will care for his people. And there will be people here this morning who do need to rise to the challenge of this vision statement of caring for the people God has placed in your life. Perhaps you have presumed it's the job of other people, maybe the job of church leaders. And now you're beginning to see that God may be calling you to support and encourage struggling people that you know. Well, listen to that call. God is inviting you to join him in his work of transforming lives. But there may also be people who feel they're at the end of their resources. You may feel as if you'd love to care for more people in the church, but you just can't. Perhaps due to family pressures, maybe because of ill health, maybe because you just feel you're doing too much already. For all of us, whether we need to redouble our efforts under God, whether we need to trust in God more, we need to see that it's God who will care for his people. He invites us to join him in that task, but he also knows our limits. And he will not ask us to do more than we can bear. See, God cares for his people. That is a liberating truth. It's not about our efforts. God does work through us, but God also has the power to work in spite of us, in spite of our failings. So we can be confident, as Paul is, that God is working in the life of this church. See, we will let one another down. I hope when you see the vision statement for the church, it's something that excites you, but it's also frustrating because we're not there yet. We don't fully care for and disciple people here. We will disappoint one another. But Paul wants the Thessalonians to know, and he wants us to know, that while we may fail, God does not fail. We cannot frustrate his purposes for one another. And that is why when we look at this vision to care for and love one another, ultimately it has to lead us to prayer that we would know what love is, that God would show us that through his son Jesus and that his spirit would empower us and enable us to be the Christ-like people he calls us to be and to prepare one another to meet him in glory.